0: (laughs) All-important. Awe. try to answer any automotive questions you might have why don't you go and give us a call it's 291-6901 and you put a 225 in front of that you can reach us from anywhere inside the continental united states this morning and should you happen to know the world code you can reach us from anywhere in the world actually that's right i believe that's 01 for the united states okay but i wouldn't swear you I guess you could google that <laughs> there you go <laughs> wherever you may be just give us a call I'll be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction try that's to get it some information Get you started, get you stopped, which well, is more important than getting started, I well, think. Well, probably so. Probably so. Because <laughs> you can start and just keep on going. That's it. Eventually hey, you're run out of gas, I reckon. Well, or run into something. Or run into something. <laughs> Either way it goes, you're going to stop. That's but, it. <laughs> hey, go ahead and give us a call. It's 291-6901. We'd love to hear from you and love to chit-chat with you and find out what's going on in your area. Of course, the big thing here is the rain. Boy, oh man, it it's high. been raining for a week. Yeah, I don't know if it'll ever stop. It just seems like it's just every day. In and I know out, it. in and out. Of course, folks out in California saying, <laughs> <laughs> "We need some of that." Yeah, we'll take some of that. The big thing with the rain is that a lot of times, I drove in this morning and I noticed a lot of the little local roads were starting to flood. Sure deep water and the water just can't get off the road fast enough and it pulls up and ends up being six sometimes eight inches deep in certain places and a lot of folks think nothing of driving through that Sure. and a lot of times it is not going to make the car stall although it could it could depending on what it wets up but a lot of times people will just drive through that without giving it a whole lot of thought Mm -hmm. but when you start to go through water that is six eight ten inches deep what happens is that water is rising up on the inside of your wheel correct and there are some devices in there called wheel bearings what a wheel bearing is is just a rotary type surface that allows the wheel to turn without friction so it doesn't burn up if you didn't have a wheel bearing the wheel would burn up from friction when it turned the wheel bearing is full of grease and it's sealed but the seal is there to keep the grease in and to keep the large debris and such out right and it's also a couple hundred degrees running right and as you maybe seen with metal once you quench it it actually pulls moisture in. It can, yeah. And it'll pull right past those seals. Yeah, and a bearing has petroleum in it of some sort, some type of uh, some lubricant. Type of, right? And whenever you churn a lubricant of any kind, you're going to produce a certain amount of pressure. And mm-hmm. that's why it has to be vented in some fashion to allow the pressure out. Not unlike an engine has a vent on it, a transmission has a vent on it, a rear differential has a vent on it. Well, the same thing with the bearing. Because when you start to turn, it's going to build a certain amount of pressure. So the seal has to leak to a degree to, to let the pressure, the pressure off if not it blow the seal out mm-hmm. so the f- point is water will get in now when water gets into this bearing it's not going to fail catastrophically on the spot so you're probably not going to know anything is wrong at all it may be three four six eight months down the road because what's happened is a small amount of water's gotten in it gets absorbed into the grease and it starts to emulsify the grease it starts to break it down and because oil and water don't readily mix, it's not going to immediately cause the grease to fail. Mm-hmm. But it's the water or the moisture is going to start to attack the bearing surfaces because they're all clean, shiny metal. And it's going to start putting little rust pits in it. It's going to start to emulsify and break down the grease. So over a period of time, what's going to happen is you're not going to have the same lubrication. The surfaces are starting to get pitted up. The bearing will start to fail. And again, because it is fairly robust, it's not going to fail immediately. What we see most often is six months later, you're driving along maybe 45, 50, 60 miles an hour, and you notice a noise that you just didn't have before. So kind of subtle, may not even really pay a whole lot of attention to mm-hmm. Then maybe two weeks, three weeks later, you notice that you're starting to hear that same noise, but louder. Then you may notice it at a lower speed. And what happened is as the bearing is starting to deteriorate, the noise gets louder And it also starts to come down at the speed range. It takes a lower and lower speed range to bring the noise on. Before, you may have had to get to 55, 60 miles an hour to hear it. Well, when it really starts to get bad, you may hear it at 30 miles an hour. Sure. And if it's left untreated, what's going to happen is that that bearing is going to generate a tremendous amount of heat because it's not being lubricated properly, so friction starts to come in. And I have seen instances where the bearing will actually weld itself together and weld itself to the spindle or the drive axle or the hub and just have a catastrophic failure. Worst case scenario, the wheel can fall off of the car. Sure. So it can actually get very dangerous. You can also get a lot of vibration from this, though not always. Right. Uh, most, gonna, it's, it's most of the time it's a noise you're going to hear. Most time you're going to pick up the noise before you pick up the vibration. Right. So just something to look out for. We're going to go to our phone lines. We've got Clark online. Good morning, Clark.
1: Good morning. Yes, How sir. How y'all doing? Doing wonderful, sir. I just replaced the battery on my son's car a couple of months ago, and I had to go pick him up a couple of days ago in the rain. Okay. The car was totally dead. Uh-huh. And with the traffic being like it was at rush hour, it took me an hour to get home. And I stopped by one of the parts stores, and they had him check the battery and mm-hmm. the alternator. Yes, sir and it shows up good the car started fine yes, the last sir. 2 mm-hmm. days mm-hmm he said he didn't have you know he didn't leave anything on so i'm trying to figure out what the troubleshoot because i don't want Clark, to, I'm to do gonna
0: tell anymore. you we see this kind of thing a lot and a lot of times what happens a battery just goes dead it just dies because the battery was bad it was old or whatever they all die in different ways right but sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes something caused it to die now like you just hit on one thing is an alternator if the alternator is not putting out enough you're going to start to lose mm-hmm. you know, voltage know in the battery eventually it'll die Another thing is what they call a parasitic draw. Now, that is very, very difficult to find sometimes because sometimes it's intermittent. And it's one common thing would be, obviously, the light left on in the glove box. Okay, that's pretty easy to understand. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it's something that you can't really pick up on. Like, I've seen a door lock switch not Uh make up sometime, And what it's doing, it thinks the door is being opened. So it starts waking up all the computers and maybe it doesn't do it all the time. But I got you. you can have something like that. When all those computers power up, you're going to mm-hmm. probably have a half-amp draw. And it doesn't take long for it to kill a battery. We had a Ford not long ago, and Leigh had put three batteries in it over the course of about two years. And that's how subtle it was. But occasionally what would happen is that the door jar switch was not completely bad, but it was getting bad. And let's say somebody would walk by the car, maybe a truck would pass on the road, and it would shake the door just enough. It would actuate that switch, which would actuate the internal, because when you open the door, all the stuff comes on. It would wake all those computers up, and when it did, it would start to discharge the battery. And if that happened two or three times a night, you may have a dead battery. Now, if it didn't happen, you probably just had a little bit weaker battery than normal. So when you cranked it up, the alternator brought it back up. But, again, you're starting to deep cycle that battery, which shortens the life. That's why the first battery would die. But something like that is what I would suspect. What I would try first, in fact, if you go on my website and just search the word parasitic, you're going to find an article on how to check for that and all. You can take and remove one of the battery terminals and connect a milliamp meter between it and the battery post. And you ought to have five hundredths of an amp or less. And when you first do it, you may be pulling a lot more. You just got to let it sit and wait because the computers have to go to sleep. That can take up to a half hour, sometimes an hour, depending on what kind of car it is. So when you first check it, you may see like a one-tenth of an amp draw. Let it sit for about a half hour. Go back. It'll drop down to five hundredths of an amp. It's best if you can disconnect that battery without disconnecting the battery. Yeah. I'm going to go into that a little deeper here. We've got a battery saver that plugs into the OBD connector underneath the dashboard and keep mm-hmm. the, keeps the system alive while we disconnect the battery and change batteries. If you had something like that, when you disconnect the battery, if you had a problem and disconnect the battery, it may not show back up. That's right. But if you can disconnect the battery while the problem is there without losing power to the rest system. of the system, then you can start checking yeah. See when you disconnect the battery, all you, computers go to sleep. Right. Well they go So if one was hung and it was the intermittent thing and you could have caught it then, but when you disconnect the battery to hook your test instrument, it all it, it reset everything. Right. Then you lost it. So like Brian was saying, if you can jump across it to preserve power, hook up your instrument, then disconnect that power where it's all flowing through your amp meter, then you can actually measure it. Kinda difficult for a do it yourself, or it can be done if you're persistent and you're pretty handy, but that's the way you're gonna have to go about finding it. Once you find that you do have a draw you can start removing the fuses one at a time until the draw goes away. And when you do, then you at least know what circuit it's on. You just have to see what things are on that circuit and start checking each one. But I've seen weird stuff like oh, a, yeah. a seat heater. Yeah, seat heater it's or a right. seat control module. And if it's always doing it, it's pretty easy to find. Sure. But if it's intermittent, sometimes it's kind of difficult. So
1: how do you keep the power on the battery if
0: you, you disconnect the battery? You just have you to, to jump it? across it with another battery. We've got a special device that plugs into the obd two connector and does it for yeah. us. But if you got like an extra battery you could do it with a set of jumper cables, you just have to be kinda of careful, you don't wanna make a spark. But you just have mm-hmm. to keep power on the system while you're disconnecting it. Another way I guess you could actually put a jumper wire across the terminal and the battery, disconnect it while that's still connected, hook up your gauge and then disconnect that jumper wire. As long as you keep power on the system while you're doing it, it's gonna make it easier for you.
1: I gotcha. All
0: righty?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you want to keep the power. What you're basically doing, you're looking for a fault somewhere. Well, that's right. You're, you're right. you're looking for
0: a draw on the system. And like Brian said, if you disconnect the battery, the fault may go away, and it may not occur again for several days. So
1: so if I check the alternators, as long of the alternators putting out close to 14 volts. Or whatever. Well,
0: no, not really, because that's only voltage. So you have to consider amperage also. And mm-hmm. I tell you, we're up against a break right now. If you could hold on, be back and talk to you a little bit more about it. Okay. Okay, we're gonna take a quick little break. Eve right back with you. To West. Hi folks, Lewis Aldezan here from Agco Automotive. Our team is celebrating 40 years in business, and we're getting congratulatory calls from all kinds of characters, and I do mean characters. Zoinks. You know, Lewis, me and Scoob will never forget the time that you fixed the alignment on the mystery machine. Forty years is really far out, man. <laughs>
1: West, there's a lot of lily-livered varmints out in the automotive world, but not of you. You're the best north, south, east, and west of the Pecos. Hats off to 40 years, partner. Go! Oh. 40 years is almost higher than I can count. My only complaint is that you don't give away free donuts. <sighs> donuts.
0: Well, it seems like high-quality automotive care in this day and age is still appreciated. I just can't believe all these characters really call. Oh, well, they always say I am quite an animated guy. Agco. After 40 years, it's still the place to go. (laughs) Welcome back. You just join us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Alderson, with Mr. Brian here. We sure appreciate you spending one of your Saturday mornings with us. We hope we can help you out. Give us calls, 291-6901. And we were talking with Clark about his alternator and his dead battery. Clark, voltage is one very important part of the system, but we also have amperage. An alternator can put out 14 volts or 14.5 volts and not put out sufficient amperage. And what happens there, let's say the load on the car is 80 amps. And let's say you, the alternator puts out 75 amps. Well, what's going to happen is it's not going to die right away, but it's going to slowly, the battery's going to subsidize the alternator, and eventually it's going to kill the battery. Sort of like if you're making deposits and they're slightly less than the checks you're writing. You know, you're not going to go out broke right away, depending on how much money you got in the bank, but eventually you will. So I you
1: understand have, what you're saying about the amps. It
0: has to be the right amount of amperage and... You can have like what's called a diode that's bad in an alternator, which if you ever think about it, the hot terminal of that alternator ties directly to the battery in most cases. So the power flows out in one direction. But when you turn the key off and the motor quits running, the power can flow right back through and discharge through the field calls. So the diodes prevent the electricity. It's like a one-way valve. It prevents it from flowing back the other way. If you've got a bad diode, the alternator can kill your battery overnight. So okay. there's just lots of ways alternators can go bad other than just the voltage be low, although that is one way.
1: Okay, any way to test for
0: that? Yeah, Let's there's watch. all sorts the of equipment. Well, not with a voltmeter does not, but... The, I really like testing them on the vehicle. Yeah. It makes it easier, better test if well, you do it on the see, vehicle. Most vehicles today are regulated by the PCM. In other words, there's not a separate voltage regulator. The PCM is controlling the alternator. So if you're not testing on the vehicle, you may take it off, take it down to a parts store. It may check fine but the PCM may not be commanding or may not be seeing the right signal because it's reading off the B-terminal and all that kind of stuff, and your battery still goes dead because y'all there are still not charging. So the only way to really check one properly is with a Mazda scan tool where you can plug in, you can see what the, the PCM is commanding and all that, or equivalent to a Mazda scan tool. But... Uh, most of your better shops are going to have the factory scan tools and they can go in they can actually see what the PCM's command and they can see what it is they can override the command to see what the maximum output is on the alternator all those sorts of things but without some type of way to bi-directionally communicate with the PCM you really can't hardly check it properly
1: I got in one of these uh, little tools that you can buy that checks the
0: codes and all that no that, 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 that will not be able to communicate with that who came get into that part of the system i got you i mean you could pick up a catastrophic failure with a part store alternator you know if it just quits charging, yeah it's gonna find that or let's say it's got a bad diode it'll probably find that but it's there's also subtle ways it can go bad that it can't find because i know we get a lot of times people say oh i've had my alternator checked i've had this checked. i've had that check we check checking. hey it's bad well mm-hmm. why didn't they catch it well because they don't have the instrumentation or training to do it
1: I got you. And right. You don't know. You don't know what the operating conditions are. That's right. right.
0: Exactly right. I got you.
1: Okay. All right. All right. Appreciate it. All right. Thank but, y'all. All right. All
0: right. Thanks for calling, man. Bye bye. All right. We're going right back to our phone lines with Patrick. Good morning, Patrick. Hey. Good morning, guys. How are you
2: this I, um, fantastic. I'm glad the rain's kind of breaking up I'm a little bit tired of <laughs> the wet weather. Mm-hmm. Hey, I got a couple of questions. I don't know the rules here. I don't know if it's one question. No, per no. no. Okay, so I'm driving a 2005 Dodge Magnum RT. Love the car. Mm -hmm. Fantastic car. Some of the things that's happening here lately that I got kind of a question about is, Mm -hmm. when I adjust the steering wheel, telescopic out, things like that, Mm -hmm. sometimes that ABS, I'm not not ABS, but the uh, airbags, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're ABS light comes well,
0: on SIR light probably
2: right so i can adjust it and it will go off yes
0: okay mm-hmm. Pretty uh, common. So I,
2: don't the, I don't know if the harness is short in there and there's a, there's a short in the line that's what i would it is
0: and most of the time patrick is going to be there's a part in the steering column called a clock spring and the reason they call it a clock spring is because it's wound it's like a wire that's wound one way and then wound back the other way like a clock spring When you turn the steering wheel, it feeds out in one direction, and when you turn it the other way, it feeds back the other way. What it does is it electrically allows the steering wheel to be connected to the rest of the car and still turn. Through a wire instead of a contact. Through a wire instead of a contact like a horn uses, like a slide contact. But airbags are far more critical. They can't rely on a slide, so they've got a clock spring. Most of the time on a Dodge, either the clock spring itself has failed or there's a little connector on the back, I think they call it a squib, and sometimes that will fail and movement in a certain direction may bring it on, and you move it another way, it may make contact temporarily. Eventually, it'll probably fail completely, and the airbag light will pop on. Right. Kind of bad in a way, because if you had a collision, your airbag may work and it may not work, depending on what happens. If you hit that steering column, and the airbag doesn't deploy. Now's the time to get it looked at, because yeah. it's happening intermittently. So you know you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. And like Lewis was saying, it's going to fail shortly, because that is constantly turning. I right. mean, every time you turn the wheel, you turn that that clock spring turns mm-hmm. those wires just wind and unwind and with any wire you move it enough and it's going to break Basically it fails right but it will store a code in the airbag control module and you can go in with a chrysler scan tool pull that code out and that will tell that'll confirm what you got then you just remove it take a an ohm meter and ohm test it for an open or a short and move it around you create the problem and it's not too too big of a deal you do have to take the airbag out so you have to disarm the system to replace it because you could deploy it if you weren't careful but not a huge, huge deal. I mean, probably a few hundred dollars.
2: What? All right, second question. I'm at 30,000 miles on the same vehicle, mm-hmm. and apparently I have a antifreeze leak. Okay, But cool. I don't know where it's at. It's not showing up anywhere. But I do have to top it off, say, every couple of months. Yeah. What
0: engine's in that car?
2: It's a, uh, Hemi. The, the Hemi. The Hemi engine, okay.
0: i tell you what I have seen a couple of times is heater core failures on those cars. They seem to have a fair amount of problem without around 100,000 miles. And what happens when the heater core leaks is that it drips into the same pan as the air conditioner, so it doesn't drip in the car. And when the air conditioner runs, the water from the air conditioner just dilutes it and washes it out, and it drips underneath the car. And being diluted with fresh water, it may not even leave a spot because it's probably not leaking a huge amount. But that would be one possibility. Of course, another is it could be something like the water pump is starting to leak, and the fan on the front of the motor is blowing it back against the engine block, which is hot, and it's evaporating, so it never hits the ground. I've seen the thermostat housings leak on those a lot, too. That can do it as well. They'll leak right at the base, and it'll run on top of the the engine. would you smell that? Maybe, maybe maybe not. Depends on how small the leak is. How much coolant are you having to add to the reservoir bottle?
2: Probably a cup every... I don't know, a month or so. Man, See, that's, that's pretty not a small much of leak. leak at
0: all. And under the hood, you gotta remember you got that big fan blowing, that's blowing that smell away. If you were standing right over it while it was leaking, you might be able to pick something up. But again, a worse leak you'd probably smell it Nerd. pretty well, but you may not ever smell that. It's a fairly okay. small leak. Now another thing that we can do at the shop is we could put a pressure test on it and probably locate it. Beyond that I can add dye to the system and then wait and then come back with a black light and I can find wherever it comes from. It'll, right. it'll leave a dye trail. Last question for you guys. I'll tell you what, uh, I'm right up against a break. Could you hold on through the break? Sure. sure okay, thanks. if you can hold on, we're going to take a quick little break, and we'll be right back. Hi, it's Louis Aldezan from Agco Automotive. It's our 40-year anniversary, and the phone's been ringing off the hook with congrats from far and wide. Good day, and
1: congratulations from Buckingham Palace. Next time you're in London, Lewis, you must stop by for tea. I'm restoring an old Aston Martin and have some questions about the timing adjustments. Hope to see you soon. Lewis, it's your nanny. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I wanted to call and tell you how proud I am of you. Forty years is nothing to sneeze at. ho 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 lewis fixing cars right the first time for over 40 years you've been a very good boy i think i have something special for you this year keep up the good
0: work see calls from far and wide i guess 40 years of high quality work really means a lot to people and keeps me on the nice list i can't wait for christmas agco after 40 years it's still the place to go
2: off the
0: river to ride, don't mind it, cause the man with the whiskers hey, well, has I'm a lot behind yaw yaw it. But it can keep oh, rushing with the victory. With just a when you're making me. Hey, we're going try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Once don't you us call? It's 291-6901. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. Always enjoy chit-chatting with people and answering questions for Sure. And we're going back to our phone lines with Patrick. And Patrick, you had a third question. What is it? Also, 130,000 miles, same vehicle. I have not changed the transmission fluid. i bought this car
2: used I don't know if they changed it at 90,000 miles interval that they recommend. Yeah. Yeah. But uh so is that something I even should fool with? I heard oh, yeah. different rumors that hey, you know, if you haven't changed it by now, don't do it. Yeah, I'm glad you
0: brought problem. that up because that's a persistent old yeah, I'm hang rumor up and listen to you. Thank you so Okay, much. thanks man. That's a very persistent old rumor that has absolutely no foundation in fact. And that sure. is if you haven't serviced your transmission in say 100, 150, 200,000 miles, don't service it. Right. It might go bad. Well, if you don't service it, it might go bad. Well, sure. It's not the service that's going to make it go bad. It's the 200,000 miles without a service that made it go bad. Exactly right. That makes about as much sense. Well, I hadn't taken a bath for six months, so I'm never going to bath again. Exactly. Makes no sense at all. A proper service. Can never ever ever hurt your transmission, and the key word is a proper service. Right, not taking it down to the garage and having to right. do a flush on it. That's right. You don't want a flush, and you don't want somebody not knowing what they're doing, putting the wrong fluid in it, or knocking a wire off of a solenoid or, or like wrong filter, that. wrong or filter, or wrong gasket. Like I mean, we could go on and on about the wrong things you can right. do to service the transmission. And where that wise tail probably comes from is at some point somebody brought their car in without a problem. Somebody did an improper service, and they had a problem, mm-hmm. or Perhaps the image was going to go out anyway. They had a service, and thereafter it went out. And it's sort of like the guy who's 100 years old. He never ate a carrot. Well, he eats mm-hmm. a carrot, and a week later he dies. So right. Always going to be the carrot to kill. him. <laughs> 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 Maybe it was 100 years. I don't know. <laughs> right. But no, to answer your question, that can never, ever hurt your transmission and very well may buy you some time because the new fluids can have conditioner, which can help soften the seals and keep them pliable. And not only that, but when you take the pan down, you can look inside for any trash, any broken parts, but they'll all be laying in the pan, and you'll know, hey, this trans is fixing to give you a truck. That's right. So but it's you, time to do something. You kind of get a heads up that sure. way. So Hey, going back to the phone, I was Jim. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. Yes, sir. Good morning.
2: Hey, I've got a question about a 2,000 Jeep Grand Cherokee. Okay. It's got about 210,000 miles on it, and it makes a noise in the rear end, and it's getting, it, gro- it grows as its speed goes up, Yeah, and it... As it, it's only when you accelerate or yeah. have to okay. or have mm-hmm. gas. Yeah. So, so if you, if you just uh, let off the gas on the interstate, It'll quit. Yeah. it goes
0: down, yeah. Right. That's going to be either the pinion bearings or the gears making a whine. And what happens is it starts out, a bearing starts to go bad. And because the ring and pinion are kind of like a, for lack of a better term, almost like a screw, when you apply acceleration, the pinion wants to screw into the ring gear. And so it loads that bad bearing, and that noise comes in. When you let off, it winds back out, kind of unscrews. So it just increases the clearance on it and also increases the load on the bearing so the noise goes away or gets much quieter or changes. So you kind of gave it away with the XL-D-Cell. If you catch that immediately, a lot of times you can get by just replacing the bearings in the rear end. If it's going on right. for any period of time, you're most likely going to end up with a gear set. Because as soon as those gears throw out a mesh, it starts to chew them up real fast.
2: Yeah, it's in my son's car, so you can guess how oh, long yeah. it's going
0: <laughs> Well, you're probably going to end up with a full rebuild. Right. And you're going to end up probably with gears and bearings and all that, which is a fairly significant chunk of change. And the other option is maybe go to a salvage yard, try to find a used rear end. But if you start pricing those, you're going to be amazed how expensive they are. They used to be able to buy one for 200 or $300. They've gone up. You're going to probably pay $1,500 for a used rear end now. Wow. Place. They, they have gotten be, real expensive. You're not going to be much more than that in getting that yeah, one rebuilt. Probably about the same thing to have yours rebuilt. That way, at least you got new parts in it. You know it's been done right. right. So uh, I would probably suggest having someone look at that and rebuild that rear end.
2: Okay. Alrighty. All righty. That's what I was afraid of. I was yeah. thinking
0: maybe it was the uh, universal joint. No, but not nah. if, not if it goes away when you let off. That's most likely going to be gear noise, and it's going to break the gear. And when it breaks the gear, it'll be a catastrophic failure, and even mess up the housing, and then it can't be rebuilt. So, the sooner you can get something done with, the better. Yeah. All okay. right. Appreciate it, guys. Okay, thanks. Jim. Thanks, man. Bye, bye. All right. Two nine one sixty nine zero one is a number. We always love hearing from folks. We wish you'd give us a call and try to. Let us give you some advice here. We were talking about the high water earlier with the bearings and everything, but if, like you were saying before, the rear end has a vent in it. It does. The transmission has a vent in mm-hmm. it, and the engine has a vent, that's all right. because they are running a, a petroleum-based material. Yeah, anything that rotates is lubricated. Right. Anything that's lubricated is going to be under pressure. Well, The engine vent is up on top of the engine around the valve cover, so the likelihood of water getting in really slim unless you submarine it. Well, if you're really getting deep enough water, you draw water in through the intake, right? Which might lock the engine, tear it up. But before that happens, most time you're going to get it into either the transmission or rear differential because they are lower in the chassis, right? And the vents are lower in the chassis. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of rear ends go out from water intrusion. That's right. They'll get the water will get into the vent and emulsify the grease, right? And then it starts eating the bearings up just like it does a wheel bearing on the front of the vehicle that's right or a wheel bearing on the rear of the vehicle right. or a thing so yeah anytime you drive through high water you are definitely taking a risk sure i had a fellow tell me one time we tore his transmission down and it actually had some rust on the gears uh-huh. catastrophic failure transmission completely out and he says, well i thought those were seals it well, it's not a submarine <laughs> <laughs> it's water resistant sure <laughs> But especially uh, some of your cars, like your little Hondas, the vent is right on the top of the case, and what happens is that when you're running through water, let's say bumper height water, okay. the bumper is pushing this water in like a wake, sure, and it's going down under the bumper, and it's kind of flowing back up, the, in other words, the wake actually rises back up and washes over the top of that transmission, correct, and it's got a little cap on top of that vent tube which many many times is missing a little rubber hose like those uh-huh. get knocked off they fall off they, they break rot, off they break off and it's there to try to help protect it can't stop water from getting in If you put it water, it's getting in sure but it will keep some splash off but if that little hose is missing or the cap's off or the or cap is off or whatever you're probably going to buy a transmission sure because the clutches in that transmission they have a water-based right, glue, glue. That glues the material to the clutch disc. Mm-hmm. And when water gets in there, it breaks that glue down. The clutch disc goes away, and that's it. Trans is done. Right. You can never flush water out of a transmission. Once water gets to an automatic transmission, it's just a matter of time. And right. it's usually not a matter of a lot of time. Because what happens, like I said, all the clutches are running in oil constantly. So if they used a petroleum-based glue, then the they oil would dissolve would break it and away. So they have to use a water-based glue. And they're not expecting water to ever be in this transmission. right? So the clutch is a, I guess, a fibrous material that has a high friction content. It's bonded to a piece of steel, which connects to another piece of steel, and that squeezes together. That's what gives you your drive and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But if water gets on those clutches, you can take a bunch of automatic transmission clutches, throw them in a pan of water, come back a day or two later, and there will be no clutch material there at all. Right. It will just completely dissolve and fall to the bottom of the pan. Because it's, like I said, it's a water-soluble glue. So once the water gets in, it's failing. That's it. It's done. You're not going to be able to. I mean, if you immediately drained it and filled it, you might get by. But maybe. Yeah, you drive it. Home or drive it to a shop, and it's probably going to be done right. That water is going to flow just like the oil in that transmission. It's going to circulate, circulate part. through every part. And once it gets soaked into those clutches, then that's There's pretty no much out. end of it. If it stays in a longer period of time, then it starts to attack the bearings. It attacks mm-hmm. the solenoids. It will attack the gears and all that. And you'll actually start getting rust inside the case. Right. I remember we had one. Josh took apart mm-hmm. and uh, everything inside it was rusted. Yeah. If that happens, now you may be into a non-rebuildable transmission. Sure. You're into a new one now. Yeah. A, or a reman, remand, maybe. Right. You can just get to a point where it's never, you know, not economically feasible to repair. Uh-huh. <laughs> because if you have to start with, generally when you rebuild a transmission, you go in and you change all the parts that wear, but you reuse the gears and the case and the drums and the planetaries and all that. Mm-hmm. You just change the wearing parts. But if you have to start adding planetaries to that, well, a planetary assembly might be $500 and there might be two or three of them in there. Right. So you, you add just... another 1500 bucks on top of an already expensive job. Or let's say the case is broken. Well, you may add a $1,000 for a new case. Or say you got a gear, second gear, third gear, the gears themselves are bad or mm-hmm. rusted. Well, those things can be incredibly expensive, six 600 bucks a piece. So it doesn't take a whole lot of rust to do a whole lot of expensive damage. Almost definitely. So it just becomes not economically feasible to repair the unit anymore. Now, you either end up going to find a used unit and try to depending, do something with it. Depending on how old the vehicle right. is. And if the car is old and the transmission is an old type the, the, everyone you're going to find you're it's going to be have, in that shape yeah same kind right of conditions Gonna have a lot a lot of miles on it had a fella come in not long ago that had a little ford ranger pickup i think it was like a 90 model mm-hmm. and he didn't want to spend the money for a rebuilt transmission so he starts looking around for used. and he says well there aren't any i said well no you got to remember man that thing is what 15 years old right all the, and that transmission hadn't been built in 15 years cause that was the last year of it on this particular type of transmission so anyone you find is gonna be 15 years old and it's probably going to have 150,000, 200,000, 300,000 miles on it. Sure. And it may have been sitting in a junkyard. Maybe been sitting in a car with no hood. It may have rained in it. Who knows what? So if you've got a fairly – let's say you got a 2008 model car, 2009 model car. Well, that transmission is five or six years old, and maybe to use it for a few more years, you could probably find a used transmission in pretty good shape. Sure. You may find one with 30,000, 40,000 miles on it sometimes. Maybe better than what you – definitely you may, better yeah, than what you have. Yeah, you got 150 on yours. You find one with 30. Hey, you good. Oh, well, yeah. And I would rather have a good used transmission than a poorly rebuilt transmission. Definitely. Because some of the cheap rebuilds are not nearly as good as that original well, equipment they're, transmission. They're, they're just that. They're yeah. cheap rebuilds. That's right. They go through and, and paint the case, and we call them... Spray and pray? Spray and praise. yeah. <laughs> Spray, paint, and they, pray they, and they did come they, back? They take them out and clean the case off and sell them as rebuilt. There you go. folks. So. And that's all we got to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we're gonna take one last quick little break. Be right back for more in the Automotive Hour. Hi, folks. Louis Aldezan here from Agco Automotive. This year we celebrate 40 years in business, and man, I can't believe all the calls we receive from national dignitaries.
1: Louis, it's the governor. I'm taking time out from my new movie to congratulate you on 40 years. I got to run, but I'll be back. Lewis, hey, I'm playing golf with an old friend and we wanted to call and say that 40 years is quite a run. Lewis, that is
2: absolutely splendorific.
0: Hey, Lewis, James here, 40 years, wow. You know, there's nothing more I like than a good homegrown Louisiana success story, except, well, maybe politicking and my Tigers. you up now, you hear? Well, I'm flattered. I guess even in the world of politics, honesty and integrity are still something to value. Okay, well, maybe outside the world of politics. Agco. After 40 years, it's still the place to go. Welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis and president of Aco Automotive. got our lead tech, Mr. Brian, Terry, right here in the co-pilot seat. Hey, tweet to us. We'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Once we go give us a call? It's 291-6901. Still got a few minutes left to get you a live answer. And should you happen to miss that little opportunity you have today or maybe think of something during the week or maybe even next week at midnight, you can always visit our website and get your questions answered that way. The address is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There is a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button, fill out the form, and couldn't be any easier unless you wanted Lewis to come to your house and fix your car and driveway. <laughs> That's right. That probably won't happen. <laughs> I don't see that happening. I don't even fix my own anymore. There you go. <laughs> I got a whole shop. I got a whole area yeah. to do that for me. So. <laughs> Yeah, just give us an email, and we'll be glad to get an answer right on back to you. Sometimes on a weekend, it may take 24 hours or so, right. but generally during the week, I'm sitting very near a computer. You normally know get an answer back real quick.
2: Now, after about 8 o'clock
0: or before then, 5 o'clock in the morning. That's it's, right. I get up at 5 in the morning go to bed at 8 at night. So That's it. There won't be any answers coming that's from you right. that time. Just one of them old-school kind of guys. <laughs> We were talking to a gentleman earlier about his coolant leak. Uh And what happens very, very, very often we see is a car comes in and the cooling system is so incredibly corroded that it almost totals the car out. It's just almost non-repairable. And the way it got to this state is they had a coolant leak. And what people do is the worst possible thing you could do. They go and add water to the system. Now, we're talking about regular tap water. Tap water, or really even distilled water, because if you add water to the system, that is not water in that radiator. It is coolant mixed with water. Correct. Correct. When you add water to the radiator, you're diluting the coolant, which means you're diluting the corrosion protection. Mm-hmm. you got to remember, this is not your grandpa's car that had a cast iron engine block and a copper radiator. This has got an aluminum and plastic radiator. It's got aluminum and hey, all sorts of similar right. highly, highly reactive metals. So in order to keep all that stuff from corroding, they put corrosion protection in the coolant. The water in the coolant, which is a 50-50 mix, the water does the cooling, The coolant protects from freezing, protects from corrosion, corrosion, raises the ballpoint, and all these things. But when you start to lose coolant and water out and you put water back in, you are diluting the corrosion protection, normally on older, depleted coolant already. Right. Because most of the time, the reason you've already got a leak is because your coolant was already depleted. It started to corrode. And that's why you got a leak. It's created a leak, right. Then you go in and you dilute it even further by adding water to the system. Which just makes it even worse. Makes it far, far worse. And what accelerates it even beyond that is when the water and coolant leaks out, air goes in. Now, if you remember your high school chemistry, when you put oxygen on almost any type of reaction, what happens? It speeds up. Right. And when a cooling system is corroding, if it's a piece of iron, what's happening is that the iron is – combining with the oxygen in the water and it's forming a ferrous oxide with aluminum is forming aluminum oxide mm-hmm. so it's a slow burning process basically the, the metal is burning because it's combining with oxygen more oxygen in the system vastly accelerates it sort of like a cutting torch you can burn the acetylene and it puts out a little flame by 600 degrees you add oxygen to it and it jumps to 2,000 degrees sure. and it burns much much hotter because oxygen accelerates the process Now, what really adds to this is aluminum oxide is an abrasive. For instance, if you go down to the hardware store and grab a piece of sandpaper off the shelf and look on the back and it says either silicon oxide or aluminum oxide, that is an abrasive. When you start to get the aluminum oxide generating inside your cooling system, you've got an abrasive going around. You've got all these little thin coils in here, heat Mm exchangers, called a radiator or heater core. Some of them are serpentine style, which means it's one big tube that calls back and forth, back and forth. Well, every time that coolant goes around that curve with an abrasive in it, it starts to wear through it. Right. And you wouldn't think that water and abrasive would eat through aluminum, but believe me, it will, and it will very, very, very quickly. There was a Ford product a while back where when they designed the cooling system, they had the flow rate a little too high in the coolant. I remember that. And. It would go through a heater core in less than a year. It would just wear a hole through the heater core, even with the right coolant and no abrasive. Right. They actually had a restrictor you put in the heater line to slow the the flow down. Special hose with a restrictor that would slow the flow down, solve the problem. Of course, somebody would come along, well, I'm going to change these hoses. Right. Go to the parts store, buy a piece of bulk hose. Put it on there take the restrictor out. No Mm -hmm. restrictor, starts heating heater cores up again. Right. So the point is, when you have a coolant leak, if you can't immediately get to it, the first thing you need to do is buy a coolant for your car. And be aware that there's probably 20 or 30 different types of coolant on the market, and most are not compatible one with another. Correct. For instance, if you've got a General Motors car built from 96 up, it takes Dex Cool, which is an orange-based coolant. Uh-huh. If you've got a Chrysler, it takes an orange coolant, long-life coolant. If you got a Ford, it can have green, it, it can, can have yellow, yellow, or it can have orange. And right. that orange is not the same as, as Dex it. orange. It's <laughs> exactly. just the same color, but it's a different chemical makeup. The orange is an H-O-T coolant or or O-A-T coolant, Mm -hmm. organic acid technology. The green is a phosphate silicate type coolant. So you can't mix the different coolants. Right, they're not compatible. They're not compatible in the corrosion protection. They're all ethylene glycol or propylene glycol, so Mm -hmm. the freeze side is the same. But the corrosion side is totally, totally different. And if you start mixing them, you can end up with all kinds of problems. Generally, one of the first things you're going to see is you can start eating water pumps up. Mm-hmm. We get General Motors cars in all the time, and the guy says, well, my water pump went out, and I've changed it, and then they went out again, and I changed it. What's Why do these water pumps keep going out? And there's a number of reasons water pumps go out, but you look, he has got green coolant in it. So You've got the wrong coolant. You got, yeah, you got silicates in this coolant, which are eating up that ceramic seal in that pump. It was designed for an HOT coolant. Mm-hmm. And if you put the wrong coolant, it's going to cause that and cause right. other things. So, this is just the weakest link that keeps going that's out That's right the point is when you have a leak if you can't fix it immediately get some pre-mixed coolant of the right type and add that now if you can't find pre-mix what you need to do is mix it yourself sure and what you want to do is mix that coolant outside of the car do not dump the coolant in and dump some water in and expect it to mix it's not going to mix an engine block in many cases and then the heavier coolant settles to the bottom of the block and the water goes around the top so you got corrosion on top of the engine you got overheating in the bottom of the engine so what you want to do is take a container, mix it exactly 50-50, agitate it real well, and then pour it into the engine. Right. That's if you got to concentrate. If you can find coolant a that's pre-mixed, mix. it's much easier. Sure. The last thing with that is you don't want to put city water into your car. Right. Because you want, you want a distilled water. A distilled water. Because city water has chlorine, it's got fluorides, it's got all kinds of silicates and chemicals and different things it may have minerals in it Mm -hmm. it's got a lot of stuff in that's not good for your cooling system so when you buy a pre-mixed coolant it's going to come with distilled water right so you get that advantage that you don't have to actually worry about that but if you're going to mix your own from concentrate you need to get distilled water right what i like to do is buy a gallon jug of distilled water Mm -hmm. and maybe drink half of it there you go (laughs) you just got to get rid of half of it And you can mix Mm -hmm. half of your coolant in that jug, jug label it what it is, Previous. what the concentrate is, mm-hmm. that way anybody that walks by and looks at it knows what's in that gel. Well egg. they know it's not orange Kool-Aid. Exactly. <laughs> and then you can add that to your That's right. You to have something to top it system. off. And better yet, just go get the problem diagnosed or diagnose it and repair it. Because even if you are adding the right coolant in the right amount, you, you still, still got air. You're still drawing air into that That's system right. as it's running down because it will draw from the reservoir of the surge tank until that runs down. Then it going start drawing air into the system. And if you get an air pocket between the radiator and the surge tank, sometimes it won't draw out of the surge right. tank. Some It'll just keep going down in the radiator. Well, with the old reservoir system, that was a real problem because it operated on a siphon process. Of course, with a surge tank, it's a flowing system, so it tends to push the air out a little better. But on those old systems where you operate on a siphon, what right. would happen is once you broke that siphon, your radiator could go ahead and get completely empty, and a surge tank would stay wherever it was at. Sure. So you're looking at that, and you think, well, why is my car it? Well, here? it was called a surge tank, and it was called a recovery jug. That's right, or a reservoir. A reservoir. But a, a surge tank is basically a flow-type system. system. It's, it's correct. Into the system. It's pressurized also, so coolant flows through it. So what it does is it generally will start to push any air out. So it's kind of a self-bleeding system, uh-huh. which is much, much better oh, than, than the what way we had it just a few years ago. Yeah. And if you ever noticed any of the older cars, I say older, mid-90s, a lot of them had like little bleeder screws. Right, because the radiator top was lower than the engine right. block. And so it didn't self-bleed. It would self-bleed. So you actually had to bleed the air out of the engine block so you could get it all out because and that's where it would hang at. Some of your current models still have like your Skies and your uh, some of your mid-engine cars and your rear-engine cars mm-hmm. because the radiator is right. in the front of the car your little know, mr2 toyota may be the same way you got to bleed that air out because such a long distance that it's not going to bleed itself exactly so there you go that's all everything <laughs> you need to know any more information you want on coolant just go ahead and search the word coolant on my website number of detailed topics on that and that'll help you out and point you in the right direction you keep making a big old mistake there you go. a whole whole lot of money We want to tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning for the Automotive Hour. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week, and go to your favorite broadcast service. And if there's a place for a written rating, give us a written rating. That's right. We always appreciate that. What it does is a written written review actually moves us up in the rating so more people can hear us, and that's why we keep doing the show. Exactly. Hey, preceding one's opinion, based on our experience in the automotive industry, have a great weekend.